Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 44 in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, December the 14th. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. First, I talked to Steve Orenstein, founder and CEO of zoom to You, a user-friendly delivery platform that connects businesses and individuals to a fast and reliable community of couriers and allows people to track where the parcel is in real time via GPS technology, and provides the driver's contact details. And then I talked to economist Stephen Kakoulis, analysing Australia's disappointing GDP figures and what that means for the government when it brings down its mid-year economic and fiscal statement next week, signalling an election budget. Will Australians go to the polls in May, or will the government call an early election? But first, let's talk to Steve Orenstein. Uh, Steve Orenstein, tell us about Zoom to you. Uh, so, Zoom to you is a, a courier marketplace, essentially, and where we're connecting couriers with customers, doing deliveries across Australia, typically within sort of a metropolitan area, so doing you know, a delivery for three hours or within the same day. Um, and originally sort of really started around making sure that, about providing customers with a much better delivery experience. And so 
being able to see the live location of the driver, being able to communicate um, with the driver as well, so being able to call them. Um, and then, you know, I guess moving away from the traditional problems that people always have with career companies arriving and you're never knowing when they're actually turning up. Okay, so how does it actually work? Um, so quite simply, anyone can go to our website. They can um, go to zoomtu.com.au, sign up, um, place a booking, um, and they can do, you know, put in a booking, whether it's just for a small parcel or whether it's for something, you know, that's really large. And um, it will tell you sort of how much it's going to cost to do that delivery. Uh, and or you can go through a bid process if you're wanting to, um, you know, if you've got some specific instructions that need to happen. Uh, and then really it goes out to a network of drivers who can then choose to accept or not accept those deliveries. And um, and then, you know, the delivery will take place thereafter. So you would have a network of courier companies working with you? No, these are generally, I mean, they might be people that um, might be a courier company, but generally it's, you know, it's people that, um, they might be driving for Zoom to you, and they might also then be driving for you know a ride-sharing company or some, something along those lines as well. Right, right. So it targets the individual drivers. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And uh, and so what th- what this would allow people could track where the par- parcel is in real time. Exactly, um, and so you can see the live location of um, of where the driver actually is based on their GPS or their phone. Um, and so then you can actually know, okay, well, is this driver five minutes away from, from your, your location or is he, you know, an hour away? Um, I think that's, you know, where the business and I guess most business ideas get started from is where there was a frustration. And this was a frustration of mine is that, you know, missing a courier when, you know, you might just be around the corner and or you've you know, jumped in the shower and then you've missed the courier. Um, this, this allows you now to see the, where the, when the driver is actually arriving. And how long, is, uh, how long has this been operating for? Um, so we've been going now for just just under four years. Um, so we started the end of uh, the beginning of uh, September 2014. You know, our first month, we you know very much was sort of trialling out to see whether we thought this this there was a, a solution here for customers or whether there was demand from customers. And we did about 250 deliveries in the first month. Um, you know, getting to now where we've delivered in that time period over 600,000 deliveries um, over that time. Six hundred thousand deliveries. Yeah, and counting. That's a lot. <laughs> That's counting. And so, where, where, where do, you, where do you mainly operate out of? Which cities? Uh, so, yeah, pretty much every major capital city in Australia. Um, so, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Canberra, the Gold Coast, um, and we'll start going into some smaller cities as as the year goes on. Do you expect to go into regional towns as well? Maybe some, yeah, some of the sort of major sort of regional towns, um, you know, whether that's like the likes of, you know, Newcastle in New South Wales or Wollongong. Uh, yeah, I think there's definitely opportunity in those, in those smaller cities as well. How much, how much is this taken up by customers? How popular is this? Look, I mean, it's, we're still very early in our journey. Um, we've been, you know, going at it just, just under four years. Um, we've spent a lot of time in building the platform, and creating awareness with customers. Um, we've had over 50,000 people who've registered uh, as customers to use the system uh, in that time period. So there's been you know, a lot of adoption from whether it's a small business through to a corporate, um, but you know, these large uh, e-commerce businesses really see this as an attractive option to be able to have where someone's um, ordering online and having that delivered within a three-hour period. So would that be your main market, the e-commerce businesses? Uh, look, it's it's one of our markets, and you know we we we've got lots of 
small businesses that use our, our, our service, but as well as um, you know, e-commerce as well as you know, is, is going to be a big part and a big part of the future. Okay, so uh, based on based on your expansion plans, when do you see us, when do you see yourselves covering all of Australia? Uh, look, I don't think we'll ever, you know, at this point in time, get to the entire population of Australia. But I think you know we're focused on, I guess, where the there's large amounts of uh, density, um, and particularly in this model where the driver that it's picking up is usually the driver that's delivering. Um, you know, that's focused on very you know, fast deliveries that are generally going to be within the same day. Are there any particular markets uh, that you've gone into that are particularly intense? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, e-commerce is definitely something that's particularly around sort of fashion and electronics. Um, you know, I think that's, that works really nicely for, for that sort of um, type of type of product. Um, you know, they're simple traditional businesses that might be the printing companies and the legal firms that always have a need to move something around quite quickly. Um, and then there's, you know, the general need for, you know, an individual who's forgotten something or needed to get a passport um, delivered to the embassy on a particular day, those types of things, and where there's some real urgency around it. Uh, I think where, where people are looking for a fast delivery uh, and reliable, then this is the, the option that they're looking at. How do drivers take to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think we now have over uh, 1,300 drivers on the platform. Um, we've got a wait list of about 12,000 drivers. So there's, you know, drivers love the flexibility of being able to choose when they work um, and to be able to choose which bookings they're actually going to, going to do. And to be able to do that in between, you know, whether they're doing some other work as well, um, they've got the flexibility to be able to do that. Uh, so they, you know, the, the feedback that we get is, you know, they really love that, that they've got um, that flexibility um, and using doing deliveries. And I think different in some instances, if you know, they're used to doing some ride sharing, they like, you know, sometimes in some instances, um, not having a person in the car, they rather a, a, a box in the car um, in some instances. And uh, and do you actually need to screen out suitable drivers for the service, or would it suit all drivers? Um, look, I think it, we we do go th- the drivers do go through an onboarding process. And that's more sort of education of them and sort of making sure that they understand how the the platform works and those types of things. Um, but that's that's really what that what that's about. Um, you know, and every delivery that a, a driver would complete would get rated. So it's always making sure that there is a quality of service. Right, right. Now, tell us about your your own your own background. I mean, you you uh, you've been uh, working in e-commerce and businesses for some time, I believe. I have. Yeah. So I started my first business when I was nineteen, and you know, I've I've learned a lot, I guess, over that time period, and and been really focused in on technology and different areas of technology, and started with a business which was um, IT support and we had a team of technicians around Sydney sort of fixing computers in, in lots of different small businesses. And so as you go through and you, the, the business evolves and then you learn things about you know, what are the challenges you had in that business and how can you um, do something different in the, in the next business. Um, and then that first business I learned a lot about systems and processes and the importance of those um, and you know, making sure that you invoice your customer quickly, so you got money in, and so the importance of cash flow, uh, and that sort of led me into sort of seeing how software could help you build those systems and processes, um, and got involved in building software, um, which led me to build a build a company called Connect to Field, which was a um, job management and scheduling application for tradespeople uh, in helping them manage all of their jobs and dispatch all their work out to a mobile workforce, and so that business. 
at the end of 2013, got acquired by a company called Fleetmatics out of the US. So I worked with them for you know probably about six months, and you know, I really enjoyed working um, on my in my own business. So I decided to leave and wasn't really sure what next I was going to do. And that's when I was sitting at home ordering things online, so sort of realised that there were some massive inefficiencies with career businesses, and saw there was an opportunity there to use the skills that I'd learned in the earlier businesses to build um, Zoom to You. Now, okay, so uh, uh, the package you would offer would be, uh, what, same day, under three hours? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it'd be the same day, it'd be three hours. We do do, do a VIP service, which is, you know, usually within the hour. Um, but yeah, those are the main sort of service offerings. Right, right. And how many packages have you actually delivered? Yeah, look, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's moving up every single month, Um and so, you know, we've, we've done, you know, well over 600,000 now, uh, the last time I checked, which was probably uh, about a month ago. Orenstein, uh, thank you very much for your time. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kakoulis. Hey, Stephen Kakoulis, last week we had the disappointing GDP numbers, which came in at 2.8%, which was lower than expected. And that's put pressure on the RBA now to cut rates and... Uh, it's also of interest is uh, the government's going to bring, bring out its mid-year economic and fiscal outlook uh, next Monday, and uh, that will set the groundwork for the next election, which so far is scheduled in May, but there's some talk that it could bring it forward to March. What's your view about this? Oh, gosh. Lots, you quite rightly say last week was a really important one for the market and for the economy because we did get those GDP numbers, which were a little bit disappointing. Look, the economy's not not crashed into a wall or anything like that, but the rate of growth at 0.3 for the quarter, 2.8 for the year, as you mentioned, is considerably lower than what the market was expecting and importantly lower what Treasury and the Reserve Bank were forecasting just a couple of months ago. So we've got this uh, subdued economic growth, I think you can call it. And remember that this was for the September quarter. Here we are in the middle of December almost. And um, we do know that since that, uh, that September quarter, house prices are down, retail spending's growing at a very modest rate, housing construction's turning down, and importantly, global economic conditions are a bit weaker today than they were three months ago. So when we're sort of thinking about what that might mean for the MIEFO, the mid-year budget update uh, next week, Treasury's got to have to put in a a little bit weaker number that they had back in the May budget. And, of course, when the economy is not quite as strong as you're assuming, uh, you don't get the uh, revenue flowing into the Treasury coffers. The company profit results are a little bit less strong. Wages growth is a little bit weaker. Therefore, uh, the tax payments are a bit weaker. So while the budget is slowly improving, uh, I think the emphasis is on slowly. It's going to take a while before we can actually be guaranteed of a surplus at any time soon. Well, what does that mean uh, about the election? Because uh, it will have to yep. be an election budget. Well, that's the, that's the issue, and it's going to be a very difficult juggling act for Mr Morrison and Mr Frydenberg because, you know, they would, obviously they're in trouble in the uh, polls, and even the news poll uh, today was 55-45, so it's an absolute landslide if that was uh, replicated. But the issue there is that they probably want to uh, use economics and economic management as one of their key election issues, they would love to be able to claim that they've got the budget to surplus. They've actually been talking to that point at the moment. So we will wait and see that confirmed in the MyEFO. But also, they would probably want to be seen to be giving some of the money back out to the electorate. You know, the, 
you know, voters are sensitive to the hip pocket nerve, as we used to say. Um, so, I'm, you know, we, we have to wait and see the numbers, of course, but there is some prospect that they'll be talking uh, income tax cuts in the lead into the election and sort of uh, use the double whammy, look, we're giving you some income tax cuts. Yes, we've got the budget on a trajectory to surplus, so vote for us. Now, whether that wins electoral support remains to be seen, but I can see that being their strategy as the election uh, gets nearer and nearer. There's some talk that uh, the budget uh, will have lots of giveaways in terms of infrastructure, like uh, roads and uh, hospitals, even power companies. Yes, well, and that's the other stuff. And to be fair, a lot of that stuff is actually useful, as we're seeing with the, just the Victorian election um, recently, a few weeks ago, that you know the Andrews government won convincingly. They had a platform of uh, uh, some significant public transport infrastructure spending. They were actually uh, returned on the basis that people do like infrastructure spending. They want their uh, public transport to be reliable, to turn up on time. They do want their roads to be built. They do want um, schools, which is, of course, counted as infrastructure. They do want their schools to be you know, built uh, near where the population growth happens to be. So, in a sense, it's a bit hard to see exactly where that infrastructure spend will be. And, of course, a lot of it is state government rather than federal government. But, nonetheless, the federal government can through the grant scheme and, and the like, give money to the state governments and uh, and have the state governments invest that money in infrastructure. So if I was the treasurer, I'd certainly be going down that latter path because infrastructure is, is sadly lacking, particularly as we've got very strong population growth and those extra people that uh, are here each year do need roads and transport to get to work and all these other things that we just mentioned. Uh, it's very interesting we're talking now about uh, an April budget, but there was some talk that uh, over the weekend uh, that uh, it may, they may actually look at having an early election in March uh, because of, uh, well, uh, they don't perform well when they're in Parliament and uh, people yes. come back from holidays in a much more upbeat mood. Well, that's the... Uh, yes, well, that they're pro obviously, that they can choose a the date to some degree, although they're getting very close to the end point now. So a March election would be very interesting. They probably wouldn't quite have the ability to um, have a budget between uh, MyEFO and the calling of the election, but they can have an economic statement and they can use that to outline any policies that they have. In a sense, an early election would would be good. It would clear the water and we'd see, you know, if, if there's a surprise coalition return to government, well, then they can get on with the job. If Labor win, obviously they've got a much bigger uh, platform of policies that they've announced so far on negative gearing, capital gains tax concessions, and these sort of big, big ticket items. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if, if they happen to get across the line that we can then see those policies implemented and, um, and get on with it. But at the moment, we've got this, uh, well, it, 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 informal election campaign has already started. And as you just touched on, whether it's going to be early March or... Uh, Early May is the really, really the only question, and the policy settings that are announced between now and that date too. Well, the other issue too is about uh, the uh, the GDP numbers, and uh, today we've had a warning from the OECD that uh, uh, soft landings in the housing markets, uh, Australia should be ready to respond uh, due to the risk of a significant price dive. Indeed, the the, the OECD are now sort of joining this chorus that seems to have got louder and louder over the last month or so, when we've had confirmation that the house prices are, uh, are falling and the rate of fall is actually accelerating. You know, Sydney last month was minus 1.4% for the month. That's a lot of money that people are sort of losing, I suppose you can say. And 
the link between uh, the change in wealth, that housing is an important asset for many people, uh, and their willingness and ability to spend is quite clear. So now that we've got house prices falling into the December quarter, um, it suggests to me that the retailers and uh, those involved in discretionary spending, holidays and these sorts of things, they're going to be doing it tough. It will be a tough few months into the new year, partly because wages growth is still very low, but also importantly because uh, we're, we're losing money, that the wealth effect is, is, a, is a positive one in terms of the correlation. When wealth goes down, spending goes down, and it's a simple correlation, but I think that's just simply going to show up. So these are, these are not uh, easy economic times to be heading into an election. It'd be a tough time for the government, indeed. You, you, obviously, they'd love to be going in there with the economy firing away and uh, and you know, really performing well. That would be an important thing for them. But alas, it looks that once we start getting the retail sales numbers for the month of December, obviously, we have to wait for, for a little while before that happens. But that will probably be right in the height of the uh, start of the election campaign, that we'll see whether Christmas was a poor period for the retailers or whether it was OK. My hunch is that it's going to be pretty poor. Um, and then that's going to sort of put a serious question mark over the, you know, we're good economic managers um, uh, idea that the, that the coalition government wants to run with. So, right, right, right. So... Back to the property market, I mean, uh, it's falling at the moment. How far do you think it's got to fall? The, the $64 billion dollar question. There seems to be a fair bit more downside. The banks have tightened their credit. Investors are shying away from the market at the moment because rental yields are poor and they know that prices are falling. And we do know that there's some pent-up demand from first-home buyers. Now, they're also stepping back because they want to pay a lower price. And with all the chatter of and the actual fact of falling house prices, they're probably going to hold off their uh, decision to re-enter the market. So if they see prices falling a bit more and then perhaps stabilising, they'll get in. So, look, my hunch is we'll probably see another 5 to 7% fall in prices. I'm not one of these people that think we're going to fall 20% plus. We might get from peak to trough in various cities 15-odd percent, but to fall 20%, you actually need the economy to underperform unemployment to go up and you need a few forced sales. I don't think we're in that space yet. And as the Reserve Bank Deputy Governor Guy Bell noted last week, if we do get bad economic news, if the wheels do fall off, well, they can cut interest rates, even though at this stage they probably don't want to. And uh, with the record, with the cash rate at a record low of 1.5%, the bottom line is the RBA has very limited ammunition. Well, the, yes, they, that's a really interesting thing. And Guidebell touched on this. Obviously, they are getting very close to zero. And of course, that's a sort of a natural uh, flaw. But he did actually say, and I, I think this was taken out of context a little bit, I don't think it's the sort of top of their policy agenda, but they said they could, like uh, the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve in the US and Bank of Japan, in dire circumstances, if we were to have a hard landing, if we were to have a recession, they could look at quantitative easing, and that is effectively printing money and, and pushing that into the, uh, into the economy. Now, that would require the worst case. So when we sort of say they've got limited ammunition on official rates, that's probably true, but there are other policy levers that they can implement if we have a really bad economic circumstance. So it, it, I hope we don't get anywhere near that. Um, but it, it's interesting to see if we do get the housing market spilling over into weakness more broadly in the economy. There are other things that the, uh, the RBA can look at, not just official interest rates. 
Well, all of that suggests that uh, we're heading into an election with uh, the government in very constrained conditions and big challenges ahead for the opposition, uh, which will be a fascinating thing to watch. It'll be fascinating. If you believe the polls, and I suppose there's just so many of them saying pretty much the same thing, that Labor are ahead between six and eight and ten points. They're, they're huge wins. That's a very, very comfortable win for the Labor Party if those numbers were replicated. So the coalition really has to pull a rabbit out of the hat somewhere extraordinarily or Labor have to completely muck up their uh, campaigning strategy, neither which looks likely. So... Yeah, the betting markets are strongly in favour of Labor. The polls are in front of uh, in Labor, strongly favouring Labor, I should say. So it looks like a Labor win. So perhaps we should be spending a bit more attention uh, looking at their policy agenda because in six months' time, they're the ones that could be pull pulling the policy levers. Well, Stephen Coolis, that'll be fascinating to watch and uh, looking forward to chatting you two next year. Indeed, and Happy New Year. I hope uh, 2019 is a good one for everybody, including yourself, Leon. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, markets have tumbled globally after the detention of Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou. Meng, who was reportedly suspected of trying to evade US trade curbs on Iran, and who was detained on December the 1st while changing planes in Vancouver, Canada, raises doubts whether the trade truce will hold and whether the world's two biggest economies can resolve the complicated issues that divide them. The US alleges that Huawei used a Hong Kong shell company to sell equipment in Iran in violation of US sanctions. It also says that Meng and Huawei misled American banks about its business dealings in Iran. And markets took a dive on the combination of concerns about the US-China trade dispute and the prospect of the UK leaving the European Union without a deal after UK Prime Minister Theresa May called off a crucial vote in Parliament on whether to approve her Brexit deal. She'll head back to Brussels to seek a better offer from the European Union. And it's mission impossible, with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker saying the EU would not renegotiate the deal, but there was room, he said, for further clarifications. The pound fell to the lowest level since June 2017, as fears about a no-deal Brexit resurfaced. UK bonds rallied, with yields hitting the lowest since August. May told the Cabinet she will travel to Brussels for talks with EU leaders on Thursday and ask for better terms on the most controversial part of the withdrawal agreement, the plan for the Irish border. As it stands, the deal would be rejected by a significant margin if MPs voted on it, she admitted. But she said she was confident of getting reassurances from the EU on the Northern Ireland border plan. She refused to say when the Commons vote on her deal would now be held, saying it would depend on how long fresh talks with the EU last. Some MPs called for it to come back to the Commons before Christmas, but Mrs May would only say the final deadline for the vote was the 21st of January. She said the UK's departure date from the EU, the 29th of March next year, that's 100 days from now, was written into law and the government was committed to delivering on it. Now Parliament had been scheduled to vote on Tuesday on the agreement that Mrs May reached with the bloc for Britain's withdrawal on Brexit. A critical moment in her political career and in the battle over an issue that has gripped British politics for nearly three years. But weeks of bitter criticisms and days of parliamentary debate had left no doubt that the plan would be soundly rejected by lawmakers, 
due in large part to objections over plans for dealing with the Irish border the pro-Brexit lawmakers say could potentially leave the UK tied to some of the bloc's rules indefinitely. If we went ahead and held the vote tomorrow, the deal would be defeated by a significant margin, Mrs May said in an unscheduled address to Parliament on Monday afternoon, punctuated by jeers and laughter as she attempted to make her case. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. She spoke to leaders by phone at the weekend, though the bloc has made it clear it won't reopen negotiations. May's plan to delay the vote throws the Brexit process into further turmoil. She has promised to give the House of Commons a binding say on whether or not to ratify the UK's withdrawal agreement with the EU before the country leaves the bloc on March 29th. It's now unclear when that vote will happen. The stakes for May are high. If Parliament refuses to endorse the withdrawal agreement, the UK will be on course to leave the EU without a deal, unleashing political and economic chaos. May herself could be forced from office, and the UK might need a fresh election or referendum to resolve the crisis. At this point, the way forward is difficult to chart. In a matter of weeks, even days, we could see a Tory leadership push or a broader vote of no confidence against May in Parliament. Now, opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn appears keen for new elections that would give the government a new mandate and possibly put the veteran leftist in power. Others warn of the ultimate catastrophe. A no-deal Brexit in which Britain tumbles out of the EU without any kind of plan in place, sparking havoc at ports, corporate headquarters and supermarkets. It would undoubtedly exact a calamitous toll on the economy. In the event of a no-deal exit, the UK economy would be savaged. The Bank of England has said it would face its worst recession since the Second World War. But the EU wouldn't escape unscathed, with the timing of Brexit occurring at a delicate moment in the midst of a trade dispute between the US and China. And indeed, more volatility could be in store for stocks, as investors assess not only the impact of a non-Brexit and US-China trade dispute, but also the allegations by prosecutors that US President Donald Trump directed illegal payments to ward off a potential sex scandal and the possibility that he sought to secretly do business in Russia during his 2016 campaign for the White House. And to Australia. And house price falls across Sydney and Melbourne are accelerating according to new data that shows the nation's key property markets are facing their most challenging period in a decade. The Australian Bureau of Statistics found the capital city prices fell by 1.5% in three months to the end of September. The biggest fall was in Melbourne, where prices dropped by 2.6%. The Melbourne market has now turned negative at an annual rate, down by 1.5%. In Sydney, prices dropped by 1.9% to be off by 4.4% over the past 12 months. It was the worst quarterly performance for the Sydney market since March 2005. And the Melbourne market had its toughest quarter since September 2008. And the OECD has given a warning about the Australian housing market, saying we should be ready to respond to the risk of a significant price dive. In its latest survey of Australia, the Paris-based group forecasts economic growth of 2.9% next year, leading to a gradual pickup in wages and inflation. And while it said the housing market's cooling was so far orderly, it warned that high property prices and household debt were potential instabilities, and that could hit the banks hard. Risk of an overshoot in the price correction? A hard landing remains, the OECD said in its report. Estimates of housing valuation are highly uncertain, and past OECD work has found that soft landings are rare. Now, Australian house price declines are centred on Sydney and Melbourne and reflect credit curbs and increasingly nervous buyers. But unusually, the drop is happening against the backdrop of record low interest rates and strong hiring 
Whereas, historically, property downturns occurred when rates were high, growth was slowing, and unemployment was rising. Past falls in the housing market were halted when policy easing encouraged buyers to return. And interest rate cuts are less likely now. And with the cash rate at a record low of 1.5%, the Reserve Bank has limited ammunition. Nonetheless, the OECD said authorities should prepare contingency plans for a severe collapse in the housing market. And it said, These should include the possibility of a crisis situation in one or more financial institutions. And Australian business conditions fell noticeably in November, continuing a downward trend seen over the recent months. NAB's latest business survey showed business conditions fell two points to a reading of 11. Perhaps more ominously for the economic outlook, confidence fell to a 2018 low of 3, and it's now below its long-term average. Looking at the key themes for the month, NAB identified the retail sector amid ongoing concerns on the consumption outlook in an environment of falling house prices and low wage growth. And Business Insider Australia and sister websites previously owned by Fairfax Media have been gutted by nine as part of the merger, with more than half of the 50 staff made redundant. At least a dozen of the 26 staff who lost their jobs on Tuesdays were journalists who produced Business Insider, technology site Gizmodo, entertainment and fashion site PopSugar and gaming site Kotaku. The other job losses came from sales, finance and other support functions. The redundancies, which were unexpected, are the first editorial jobs lost since the merger between Nine and Fairfax, but form part of the 92 job losses announced last week by Nine. And IOOF has announced that its managing director, Chris Kelleher, and the company's chairman, George Venados, have agreed to step aside from their positions effective immediately pending resolution of the APRA proceedings. This follows the Prudential Regulators' bombshell announcement last week to take legal action against the executives. IOOF said Mr Renato Mota would be appointed as acting CEO and Mr Alan Griffiths would be appointed acting chairman. Now, the changes are effective immediately. Acting IOOF chairman Mr Griffiths said the company would fight allegations made by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority that the CEO and chairman were not fit and proper people to oversee the company's multi-billion dollar superannuation arm. IWF shares plummeted 35% on Friday when news of APRA's move to disqualify Mr Kelleher, Mr Venados, Mr Coulter, Mr Vine and Mr Reardon from acting as trustees. And the competition watchdog has proposed sweeping reforms to control the market of digital giants like Facebook and Google, including a new ombudsman to investigate complaints by consumers, media companies and marketers and measures to monitor the prices they charge for advertising. Global social media and search companies would be required to tell the regulator about local business acquisitions in advance and submit themselves to third-party measuring of advertisements. And the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has recommended all of this in a preliminary report and it's also considering whether making personal subscriptions to some news publications tax-deductible to, in their words, encourage production and consumption of news and journalism. They say that would be a useful change and they flagged possible changes to the way digital platforms inform consumers about privacy policy. The ACCC has also proposed that a new or existing regulatory authority will be given the task of investigating, monitoring and reporting on how large digital platforms rank and display advertisements and news content. Other preliminary recommendations suggest ways to strengthen merger laws. The suggestions come after a year-long investigation by the ACCC into the digital platform's impact on advertising revenues and news publishers, the distribution of fake news and the public's understanding of how their data is used. And Telstra 
has secured the largest proportion of the high-speed 5G mobile network in an $853 million auction. The network is set to launch next year with a promise of more reliable and higher quality video streaming and faster fixed wireless internet. The Australian Communication and Media Authority said on Monday that all 350 available lots of 3.6 gigahertz band spectrum had sold at an equivalent of almost 29 cents per megahertz per population, that is, per unit of spectrum per person. Telstra paid $386 million for 143 lots. Vodafone and TBG, who were in the midst of a merger, won 131 lots for $263 million. Optus won 47 lots for $185 million. And Dense Air Australia won 29 lots for $18.4 million. And the Commonwealth Bank's bad and expensive year has just got worse. The CBA has told the market that another $335 million is likely to be stripped from its 2019 bottom line by new costs. Now, the bulk of the new costs relate to an extra $200 million on top of an existing $270 million provision for the fee-for-no-service scandal. CBA also faces extra costs selling its scandal-plagued Cominsure life business and demerging its wealth arms. Now, these new provisions are on top of the $1.1 billion of fines and the one-off regulatory costs the CBA detailed in its 2018 full-year results. And finally, the Australian Pathology and Radiology Group, Sonic Healthcare, said it's agreed to buy Florida-based Aurora Diagnostics for $540 million, creating what it says will be one of the world's largest pathologist groups. And that brings an end to Talking Business for 2018. It's been wonderful introducing you to businesses and startups, sharing their stories with you, sharing the views of Australia's top economists, and giving you all the latest news in business, finance and economics. You can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. And I'd like to wish all of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy and Safe New Year. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business starting in the first week in February 2019. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.